You are listening to a message from Sound Words. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. We look into a portion of God's Word that's thousands of years old, and yet we're reminded the Word of God is living powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And he gets down into that inner man, that inner person that we were talking about in Ephesians. It does the work that only God can do with the word that only God could give. We're in the book of Joshua, and we're ready for chapter 6, the end of chapter 5, And then into chapter 6, we looked at the preceding chapters. We've seen God working. I want to take you back to chapter 2 just for a moment. Something was drawn to my attention, and I meant to mention it to you last week. In Joshua chapter 2, you had the account of Rahab the harlot. Remember the two spies from Israel came in, stayed at her residence. She protected them. Then, when it was safe, she let them down out the window of her residence, which was on the wall of the city. And we discussed about the rope, the scarlet thread. It was drawn to my attention, and it's very obvious. In verse 15 of chapter 2, she let them down by a rope through the window. And then down in verse 18, they... Tell her that she is to tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window. And mentioned that a couple of commentators really went to show how she had abandoned her prostitute's lifestyle. And this cord and all it would have taken to dye it, to weave it, so they could slide down out of the window holding onto it. But they're probably two different things. One's called a rope and one's called a cord. Just as in English and Hebrew, they're two different words. So we're probably not talking about the same item anyway. That'll affect some good sermons, but aren't maybe the best where they've traced the red through Scripture and you have this scarlet rope hanging out the window. Probably just a scarlet thread that uh, was woven there, be much shorter, would be tied in the window. Not necessarily anything to do with them sliding down. That was by a rope. So you can make a note of that and keep that in mind as maybe you work on that passage sometime. Come back to chapter 5. We want to look at the closing verses. In chapter 5, God brought Israel into the land by drying up the Jordan River. And a reminder of what God did in delivering Israel from Egypt. He dried up the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land. Now he dried up the Jordan River so that the Israelites could come across at flood stage. When the river would be exceptionally high and overflowing its bank, yet Israel walked across on dry ground. And then the first thing they did was not to get ready for military battle And so on, like you might think, first thing we do is have to be sure we are settled in our relationship with the Lord. 
Circumcision had not been practiced on the males since they left Egypt. And every man over 20 years of age, with the exception of two, had died during those 40 years of wandering. And they had not been practicing circumcision. But they are not in fit condition. We talked about this. Circumcision was never necessary for salvation. But for Israel, it was a necessary result of salvation. And obedience showing the visible sign of the covenant that they were part of. They got established with Israel through Abraham and his descendants. And then they observed Passover. Again, you're parked right in the vicinity of the enemy's stronghold. And you're doing these kinds of religious observances. And I think it seems like you ought to first conquer the city. Then you have time to fit those things in. God's priorities must become our priorities. God says first the circumcision for the sign of the covenant. That is to be done. That incapacitates the army for a period of time. Or healing to take place. Doesn't matter. What if the enemy decides to attack? Really not Joshua or the Israelites problem. God told them what to do. You do what God says. And then any problems. Must be resolved by him. The same with the Passover. You know you see God settles their attention on him. He did that when he brought them through the Jordan. Remember? The priests carry the ark out, and as soon as they touch the waters on the overflowing bank, 15 or so miles up river, the waters pile up, and the land is already dry. Uh, We know that there are several miracles, or we might say many miracles, that go together for this greater miracle. It's the ark out there half mile or more ahead of the Israelites so they can see the way to go. And it's a reminder, God is leading us here. So everything's under control. Sort of like a parent with their child and they're going to something new and the child might be afraid. The parent says, it's all right. Everything is taken care of. And they put their trust in the parent. That's what simple things. These things were written for, remember, our admonition, our encouragement. To strengthen us that we might have endurance, Romans 15 says. So with all that, we're ready for the conquest of Jericho, but not quite. Verse 13 says of Joshua 5. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho. And note here, the context where we are, where Israel is. The people of Jericho have all retreated into the city, bar the gates, It's quite a fortress. But Joshua is there. He lifts up his eyes and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now you're in enemy territory. Now you see a man standing there and he's got a sword in his hand. Give you the idea he is ready for serious combat. Joshua is a military man. You think, well, I better retreat and get some help because who knows who's here? No. He asks the question, are you for us 
or for our adversaries. No, he doesn't know who this is. It's a logical thing. You're in enemy territory and you meet someone you don't recognize and know and he has a sword in his hand. It's a good chance he might be for the adversaries. But Joshua asks the question and the answer is no. Are you for us? You for your adversary? No. And then he identifies himself. I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And really the issue is not whose side am I on, whose side are you on? Get yourself in line here. Get ready. As soon as that is said, Joshua has exactly the right response. He falls on his face to the earth, bow to him, and ask, what should I do next? What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now I move this to another level. Leave a marker there. Come back to the book of Revelation, all the way at the end of Revelation. We're going to talk about the angel of the Lord in a moment and identify this has to be more than just an ordinary angel. At the end of the book of Revelation, an angel who has been used to show much revelation to John. And in verse 8 of Revelation 22, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw... I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And it's overwhelming. An angel has been used of God to reveal and show John these wonderful things. The angel immediately rebukes him. Verse 9, he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant, a sundulos. Do lost the word for servant or more strongly slave with the preposition with on the front. I'm a fellow slave, a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets of those who heed the word. We are like you. We are submissive to the word of God. The words that have been just communicated to you of this book, you worship God. As mighty, as powerful, as glorious as angels may be, they must not be the object of worship. Just as a reminder, now we come back here. What does Joshua do? He falls down, bows to the earth, fell on his face before this one speaking to him. It's an act of worship. What has my Lord to say to his servant? He's not rebuked. He said, you've not gone far enough yet. Verse 15, remove your sandals from your feet. The place where you are standing is holy. I mean, we're in Canaan. We're outside Jericho. This land is so defiled that God's going to wipe every person out in the city of Jericho and proceed through the land doing that. And yet now he's on holy ground. 
because this is where the Lord is in his presence. Come back to Exodus chapter 3. God had a similar confrontation with Moses in preparation for Moses leading Israel out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he leads the flock. They're out into the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. He looked. The bush is burning. You remember the account. But the bush is not being burned up. I'm sure Moses had seen bushes caught fire, but you could stand and watch them be consumed and the fire die out in this kind of region. But the bush was not consumed. Moses said in verse 3, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. God's not the bush, he's not the fire, but his presence is there in that fire. Something of his glorious and consuming presence comes as the fire. So he called to him. The Lord saw that he turned. God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In the presence of the Lord. That's what makes it holy. The one who is holy, holy, holy is here. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You know, verse 2 said, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. But it's more than a normal angel. This is God Himself manifesting His presence. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a manifestation. We call it a theophany. You can see two words. God and manifesting, manifest. God manifesting his presence. And I think all the theophanies in the Old Testament are really Christophanies, basically. Manifestations of the pre-incarnate Christ. We'll look at that in a moment. But you see the angel of the Lord and then verse 4 said, God called him from the midst of the bush. It's the angel of the Lord in the bush. And then the next time he's referred to, it's God calling to him from the midst of the bush. Then verse 6 settles it. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is a manifestation of the very presence of God. I think these kind of manifestations in the Old Testament are manifestations of the pre-incarnate Christ, where it seems... You have three persons comprising the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in John's Gospel, chapter 1, we are told no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has revealed him. Come back to John 1. Let me quote the rest of it. John 1, it's the only one we'll come to right now in the New Testament. John 1, verse 14, for bigger context, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For when you've seen the Son, you've seen God. Now be careful. That doesn't mean the Son is God the Father. You have seen God the Son. Because all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Colossians 2 tells us. Verse 18, which I refer to. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has exegeted him. The word here. He has made him known, revealed him. That seems to be the consistent pattern, not only with his coming to be born into the human race, but he is the person of the Godhead in the Old Testament who particularly manifests the presence of God among his people. That's what's going on back in Exodus. So that angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, is a unique messenger when it's the angel of the Lord or the angel of God. It is the very person of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. A number of passages come back. I think it starts in the garden when you say God came and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in Genesis chapter 3. I take it that would have been Christ. He came, he walked, he manifests God's presence. Adam could walk with God in the garden. But come back to Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to follow a little bit of this. I think it's generally agreed the angel of the Lord is the Old Testament, is the pre-incarnate Christ. And this is the account of Hagar, the concubine, with which Abram fathered a child, Ishmael. It was Sarah's idea, but then Sarah didn't like the outcome. Jealousy comes between the two women. So Hagar is put out. She has to leave. And down in verse 7, after she leaves, fled from the presence, pressure here, she's not the final leaving of Hagar, but the tension that's there that will culminate in that. But here she flees from the presence of Sarah. And you're told in verse seven, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Again, you see, he's called the angel of the Lord. So here was a manifestation of the presence of the Lord and appearance evidently was of a man. But the scripture tells us it's more than a human man. It is an angel, a spirit being, manifesting a presence. But it's a manifestation of Christ himself. But there's no doubt it's God because verse 7 said, Now the angel of the Lord found her and said to her, Hagar, Sarai's maid, why have you come here? Well, I'm fleeing from my mistress. She's making life miserable. The angel of the Lord, again, the title for him, verse 9, said, Return to your mistress, submit to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, now note what he is going to do. I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. 
The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you're with child. You'll bear a son. Call his name Ishmael. But as the Lord has given heed to your affliction, and then he tells what it will be like. Then verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? You know, you can't separate the angel of the Lord and God. Sarah, I've been talking to God. It's amazing I'm still alive. We thought he would have consumed me, but he didn't. Come over to chapter 18. Here the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now note, it's the Lord who appeared to him. He lifted up as looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. So you see the manifestation of the angel is his men. A man, there's three of them here though. They are angels, but one is a special angel. He's the angel of the Lord. And Abram just recognizes them at first as three men. And you have the oriental hospitality. Well, please don't keep on going. You've come near my home. It's my responsibility to provide for you. I'll prepare a meal for you. Let water be brought and wash your feet, refresh, rest yourselves. And he hurries, get Sarah to prepare a meal. When you invite somebody today, usually you have it prepared. In those days, they haven't even baked the bread yet. And not only that, they have to go out and kill the animal, cut it up, prepare it, then cook it. So a little bit of wait time here. They go through all the process. Then... The lead here, I take it, would be the angel of the Lord, the prime person, speaks and says in verse 10, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah laughs in verse 14. Question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Hey, the authority here and the power, similar to what he told Hagar. In the previous section we read. Then the Lord said, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will become a great and mighty nation. I've chosen him. Verse 19. Then he announces judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I will go down now and see what they have done. Then the man turned away and Abraham was standing before the Lord. So you see, it appeared to be three men and really three angels becoming clear now. The two who were just, if I can say that, just normal angels, they proceed on. But God, in the form he's speaking to Abraham, is not said to be the angel of the Lord here, but he obviously is a manifestation of God's very presence in what he says and claims to be God, and what he is doing, and what he has brought about. So he proceeds to tell Abram what he's going to do. By now, Abram is aware of the presence of the person here, and he beseeches him to spare Lot and his family. We have to work down to that, remember. Will you destroy that city if there are 50 righteous? 
No. Well, we use spirit and we work down till he thinks he's got a safe number. Abraham didn't go far enough. So the city won't be spared, but God doesn't destroy the righteous when he destroys the wicked. And then the angels in chapter 19, the two angels come. God doesn't come with them, the angel of the Lord. Come over to chapter 22. Again, the angel of the Lord wasn't mentioned there, but it's clearly a manifestation of the presence of God in talking to Abraham and is called as such. In chapter 22, God tested Abraham and speaks to him and gives him instruction. Then you come down to verse 11. Now, you know, God speaks to Abraham in the opening verses. God said to Abraham, speaks to him, and tells him to take his son to Moriah and offer him as a living sacrifice. You get to the place, Abraham's done all this. Now remember, this is the only son of promise that Abraham has. All the promises of God are tied up in this one young boy. And now, Abraham has the knife up, I'm going to kill him. Why? That makes no sense for a number of reasons. Because God told me to do this. So, verse 11. God intervenes, and who is it? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Don't kill the boy. I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then the Lord provides the lamb, and it's named even as Hagar did with seeing the Lord. She gives that place the name. So verse 14, he called the name of the place the Lord will provide because the Lord provided the lamb. And it's in the mount of the Lord it will be provided, which becomes very significant, as you're aware, in coming history. So again, it's the angel of the Lord. So you go back and forth. When the angel of the Lord's speaking, God is speaking. Down in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. So that voice from heaven said to God, later the angel of the Lord speaking, this voice from heaven is the angel of the Lord speaking from heaven. And then by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. The book of Hebrews will tell us when God could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. So it is the action of God and what God will do. Come back to Joshua. Those are a sample. You can do a study of the angel of the Lord. Get a Bible dictionary, a Bible encyclopedia. and You can sometimes get it under, just look at the angel of the Lord, or sometimes it's under Christology. Because like I say, most consider the Theophanies Christophanies. And you can see. Any manifestation of God in this way in the Old Testament is really a manifestation of Christ. And when it culminates in the greatest manifestation, it will be when God becomes a man. And who is it? It's the second person of the Trinity, God's Son. So I take it that's the one who is here in Joshua chapter 15. And that's why Joshua has to remove the sandals from his feet. I think about this, how privileged we are to have God dwelling within us. He's not outside us. 
We think, wow, wouldn't that be something if God appeared to us and stood before? But you know what's more amazing? He dwells in us, in the person of the Spirit, who is fully God as much as the Son is God, as much as the Father is God. There are three distinct persons comprising the one true God, but each person contains fully all the attributes of God. He dwells in us. Any wonder he expects holiness of us. If he expected it of Israel in the Old Testament, when he dwelt in their midst, how much more when he dwells within us. Amazing the position we have. You see the order here. It gives Joshua encouragement, strength. We'll see what the angel of the Lord says. But it puts things in order. Are you for us or against us? The issue is no. You bow before me. You follow me. You obey me. Simplifies my life. We complicate our life when we try to reverse it sometimes and get God to do our bidding. To work on our behalf. What I always want to be sure of, and you always want to be sure of, and all of God's people want to be sure of is, we are following him. That's where his word, we're talking about this in Ephesians. He lays the foundation of who he is, and then he's going to give us commands. These are not options. He's going to instruct Joshua now. Chapter 6 is going to open up. We're reminded in verse 1. That there is something of an insurmountable obstacle ahead of Joshua. You prepare greatly, but not militarily. You've done the circumcision. You've done the rituals, if you will. The fortress is still there. So now the Lord says to Joshua in verse 2. Joshua, you see, what has he done? Like we did with Ephesians, you start out recognizing the character of God. The sovereignty of God. He is one to be obeyed. We work through the first three chapters of Ephesians, where we're going. Now, here are the instructions, what you must do. I say that to connect us to this, because we read about Joshua. We say, of course, Joshua has to do what God tells him. Who wouldn't? We don't sometimes do it. We're going to see an example of that when we get to chapter 7, not tonight. We think it's optional. Or, well, we massage it here. Lord, I don't know that this is the best thing that ought to be done. Or we're unhappy with what God is doing. As though he should have consulted us. The angel of the Lord didn't appear here to speak to Joshua, to get input from Joshua. We come back to who is God. It seems simple when I read the historical account of someone else and what they had to do. Now, here's what God says to Joshua through the captain of the Lord's host. Reminder, there are the forces here that taking care of it. But all Joshua will have till the time the walls of Jericho come down is the word of God. Trusting. So the Lord said to Joshua, we come in to verse 2, I take it verse 1 is a parenthetical reminder. That's why the angel of the Lord is here. Joshua did what he was to do. He did the circumcision. He did the observance of Passover. 
Reminded him of when God brought him out of Egypt. It already reminded them with crossing the Jordan, the dried up and the circumcision, the promises. All right, now, reminder, nothing's changed at Jericho. It's just as formidable it was before we went through these other things. It's not like they did the circumcision. They observed Passover. They looked out and Jericho's on fire or the walls have fallen down or something like that's happened. Uh, The people are still shut up in Jericho. All right, now here's how you're going to attack Jericho. You're going to have a parade. And then you'll have trumpets. And then the walls will fall down. I've summarized it. The Lord said to Joshua, and this is where you get it right up the front. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king. The valiant warriors. See? All I see is Jericho. I see is a fortress. I see valiant warriors will be behind that. With a king to lead them. No, what you have to see is. I have given Jericho into your hands. With its king. With its valiant warriors. The battle's over. We just have to go through the outworking. Is there any doubt what's going to happen? And if you were Joshua here, any doubts? Lord, I've been in military battles. There are some things to be considered here. He didn't ask for Joshua's input. He didn't ask for Joshua's military opinion. He's the captain of the Lord's host. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, I could ask my father and he would send thousands upon thousands, myriads and myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands of angels. I just love the simplicity of it. Here's what you do. You'll march around the city. All the men of war circling the city once. You'll do that for six days. Seven priests will carry the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. They're going to be carrying the ark. I'll tell you the order here. Let's put it together. But he's going to tell them all the pieces. So now we're going to have the men of war. You're going to have the priests, seven priests with seven trumpets. And seven becomes a key number here. It's going to be mentioned what do we have we have seven priests seven trumpets seven days seven times around seven being a number of completion perfection scripture there's a reminder here God's working and his plan will be accomplished Uh, you'll march around the city once this entourage I appoint doesn't mean everybody's going to be in the march because it's not that big a city Some commentators estimate maybe take 30 minutes to walk around the city. So everybody's not going. So when he says the men of war and all the men of war circling the city once, remember they numbered these at 601,000 men of war. But it might be numbering those, all the men of war that I'm selecting out with the priests might be a representative group here. Either way, you see those who will be participants. They're going to walk around this city once every day for seven days. 
And what you're going to have in the order, you'll have a group of soldiers go first. Then you'll have priests with ram's horns, seven of them, coming next. And then you're going to have the Ark of the Covenant being carried. Then you're going to have another contingent of soldiers. Then you're going to have ordinary people. So we say it's sort of a parade. There's an order been set out by the angel of the Lord. Now you're not going to do anything but walk around once and then come back to camp. Relax. Wait till day two. Get up and walk around the city once. Go back to camp. Do nothing else. Doesn't give anything. Then go back to camp and do some military preparation. Sharpen your weapons. There are no instructions about the military side of this. This is the military side to the large degree because God's going to do it. They're no talking about how we're going to breach the wall. These kind of things. Just go back and wait till day two and do what you did on day one. And on day three, do what you did on day one and two. Till the seventh day. On the seventh day, things will change. The good thing, what does Joshua do? I love, he follows through 14 of chapter 5, the end of the verse there. What has my Lord to say to his servant? And when the Lord says it to his servant, his servant does it. You know, something you learn from this is the simplicity of it. When God tells you to do something, well, I have to think about that. Wait a minute. The word of God is not that complicated. He can speak in a way that's understandable. So Joshua, verse 6, the son of Nun called the priest, said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant, seven priests, seven trumpets of ram's horn, the Ark and the order, go forward, march around the city, and the order, the armed men, go forward. That's what we're doing. Now, why are we doing it this way? Because God told us to do it this way. So you have the marking what are they doing? Israel's putting their faith into action here. And after day one, they have nothing to show in the sense of any sense of victory. This is not like any military campaign we've carried on. What's the point? You know what Israel has to do? What God tells them. You know what they're putting into practice? Faith. They're acting on the word of God. You know, if after day one, they began to see some cracks in the wall, they'd say, well, that's encouraging to do day two. If on day two, some of the stones began to fall out of the wall, you say, that's more encouragement to do day three. They don't get anything. You know why? They're walking by faith. What do I have? Everything I need. God's word. He said, walk around the city, then go back to camp. He said to do that the second time, the third time. You could see by day five, you might begin to think. You're walking around the city watching. You see any shaking? You see any maybe pieces falling down? You see any 
indication that maybe, no, we haven't gotten to day seven yet. And God doesn't have to bring Jericho down in steps. On day seven, you go, you walk around the city seven times. While they're doing the walking around the city, I'm not reading all this, but what do they have to do? Maybe the hardest part of all. Keep your mouth shut. Nobody talks. This is a silent march. Just walking around the city. People of Jericho looking over those walls. You don't hear anything except maybe the walking of feet. Look out. Nobody's talking. And they go back to camp. Next day, here they come. Nobody says a word. Silence. Walk around till the seventh day. Now you can let it out. When the priests blow the trumpet, you give a big shout. And the walls will fall down. How many times have you seen that happen? You know how many times Israel saw that? None. They've seen God work in battle. But it's a little different now. We're in enemy territory, in enemy land. We've crossed the Jordan. And now the rivers come back down. So it's not easy to talk about, let's go back the other side and work on this. We're here. And we're totally passive. No, we're not. Well, I don't see what we're doing would have anything to do with conquering a city. I don't have to see it. I have just to do what God says. I keep repeating myself because he made Israel repeat themselves seven days. And then on the seventh day, they got to walk around and do the same thing seven times. Isn't God impressing them? And then on the seventh time to complete that, when the priests blow those seven ram horns, then you all shout at the top of your lungs. And all the walls will just come falling down. What if it didn't? Well, you'd look like a fool. Is there any chance? God is the God who cannot lie. He can't fail. You know, I just find it so easy to think if I was with Joshua here, I'd have have been right in line. But, you know, when you're going through whatever you go through, we have the same thing. You have to come to the word. You know, I'm a person, some of you, maybe it's age, but it's always been me. Wake up in the middle of the night this week. Wake up at 2 a.m. What are we going to do? Then you got things on your mind. Sometimes the only thing you do to settle the mind is go in, pick up my Bible, sit down and read a little bit. I have to clear my head here. Remind myself of what you have said and your sovereignty. You know, we've got things weighing on us that cast all your burdens on him because he cares for you. Good idea. So, the seventh time, verse 16, the priest blew the trumpet, said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. As a declaration of faith, if Israel could have just lived their life consistently like this, would be in the kingdom. I realize God's sovereign, and that's not what he did, but 
Israel just couldn't keep on track. There was always reasons not to believe, not to do what God said, and eventually overwhelmed them. Now there is a caveat here. The city shall be under the ban. All that is in it belongs to the Lord. That is simple, but it is most important. You better not miss this. That's why we don't want to miss anything God says. The city's under the ban. The word the ban may not be the best, but it's something devoted to God. Maybe for destruction, because he's bringing judgment. It may be to be set aside for his use only. For Jericho, everything but the precious metals, gold, silver, iron, bronze, that will be spared and placed for just the use of God in his, well, I said temple, the temple's future, the tabernacle. It's in the tabernacle treasury. That's what can be saved. Everything else, man, woman, child, animal, Everything goes to death. And then everything's burned. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to think there's some wiggle room here. Chapter 7 will show there's no wiggle room. God means what he says. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. The exception God gives, only Rahab the harlot, all who are in her house shall live because she hid the messengers. And we know in Hebrews chapter 11, in that hall of faith of Old Testament people, Rahab is there because it was by faith she acted. She believed in the God of Israel, what she had heard. She believed he was going to do what he had promised. So she acted on that face, so she'll be spared. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban that are devoted to me, that you do not covet them. Take some of them things under the ban. Make the camp of Israel cursed. You know, sin in the midst can have broad consequences. Men will die in Israel because one man sinned. Now we get to chapter 7. God's word is serious. They say, oh yeah, we take it, but it's important. The evidence was when Israel began to not take God's word seriously, that the declension will set in and it won't take long. We get to the book of Judges. One commentator titles his commentary on judges, The Distressing Days of the Judges. And you just see repeated. So here, keep your souls from the things that I have devoted. I didn't say, well, what a waste. You know, we just come into this foreign land. They've got some wealthy things, you know. In those days, you just didn't go buy new garments. They had to be woven. And things did have to be died and then you have to make by hand and we're going to go in here and, and I could maybe kill all the people but let's keep the stuff and we could use it some of it be it all has to go under the ban 
Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. When we get to chapter 7, we see that. All the silver, gold, articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They go into the treasury of the Lord. There's nothing here for Israel. You can keep nothing. You see that? It's all the Lord's. Some he's devoted to destruction. Every living thing must die. Except for the articles that I mentioned, the gold, the silver, and so on. They go into my treasury. Everything else gets burned. Be careful. You don't covet it and say, what a waste to burn this. It could put it to good use. Might even use it for the Lord. The instructions are clear. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and what happened? The wall fell down flat. The people went up into the city. Everyone straight ahead, they took the city. Note this. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old. There's no mercy shown here. No mercy shown. Not for the women. The women aren't the soldiers. No women are to be spared. Well, what about young women who have never known a man? Which sometimes there will be exceptions in some cases. There are no exceptions here. What about the infants? There are no exceptions here. Ezra goes in and this is scorched earth literally. Every man, woman, and child, there are no age separations. Now, he's warned. You can't let your emotions, your feelings get in the way here. There's only one thing that matters. Do what God tells you. I don't think it's necessary to burn valuable things that could be used in a proper way. I don't see why we would want to kill little children. We wouldn't be heartless like that, would we? There are people who have written that the God of the Old Testament, you cannot take these things literally. A loving God, a merciful God, a kind God would not do that. There's a book out and one of the writers in it. That's his view. He claims to believe in the full inspiration of Scripture, believes the Bible's the Word of God, but he just adjusts the interpretation of it. A lot of this is to be taken spiritually, talking about how spiritual battles are waged. And he ends up being in a box where he has to say much of the Old Testament is just wrong. It really doesn't reflect what God would do. When you set up your own standards of what God will do and not do, you know what you've done? You've made yourself God. Here's what I say God would do. Here's what I say God would not do. And if he doesn't do it the way I think, according to my standard, then he's not God. What have I done? I put myself in God's position. Number one, I realize he's sovereign. We don't have time to go through. We'll pick up this whole issue of the ban and the killing because that's going to happen in more one place. It's the future of the Canaanites. They have no future. They are coming into the land with prior instructions. Israel's coming into the land with prior instructions You kill every man, woman, and child. This is, some call it a holy war. That term has become such. This is 
what is right because it's what God has instructed for his purposes. What has happened is Canaan has ripened to judgment. We ought to be aware of this. You see what's going on in our country, the world, but we're living in our country. Read that there was a movement in government hierarchy. They wanted to have mandated that all the governor's mansions in the cities would fly the gay flag. We're like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not ashamed at all to flaunt this and declare we defy you, God, and what you've said. Look at why God said he's wiping out the Canaanites. What did he do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He wiped them out. I want to be comfortable where God is. So I settle in. If I didn't have any more information, there's other things to be said here. But we don't want to explain it away. This is the God that we all have to deal with. There comes a time when there is no mercy. Remember what Revelation said? When the tribulation comes, God's judgment will be poured out, stirred in the cup, full cup of his wrath. No mercy mixed in. When it comes to that, it's terrible. It's, whoa, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this. This the man, the article I was reading, I don't know if I'll read you parts of it or not next time. God couldn't do that. God wouldn't do that. He's a God of peace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He would never come in and wipe out. That's so contrary to the peace that Jesus said he brought. And God doesn't change, so he wouldn't have done that. You get all this kind of emotional fluff because we want to make God in our own image. He is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of kindness. But when you don't avail yourself of that, you find out he is also everything he says he is. A God of eternal wrath, a God of eternal anger, fury. You realize in the tribulation, billions of people are going to die from newborn babies to elderly adults, and it's judgment time for Canaan. There's going to be an exception or two. Rahab, one of those. But for Canaan, that will be where it goes. So we'll pick that up because we have to tie this together with chapter 7. Because find out, Israel can experience some of the similar and same judgment of God when they get out of line that the Canaanites do. And we're going to find an Israelite who didn't do what he was told, and he and his family and all his possessions are going to be killed and burned up. Important we understand God's character in his completeness and not just construct out of God's character what we like and reject the rest. And it makes us that much more thankful Think Rahab isn't thankful for God's salvation, for his mercy, for his forgiveness? Certainly, because she will be spared. All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. Thank you for the preservation of your word so that we can, thousands of years later, be reading these accounts and your spirit can use it for our admonition, for our encouragement, for our reminders, so we learn, we can be strengthened. And Lord, we can appreciate you are a God who keeps your word, 
a God who cannot lie. And we have our faith in your word, its promises, and we know we are secure. We look forward to the week ahead. Again, I ask your blessing on the ministry to the kids in the Bible school. Lord, I pray the Spirit will work as only he can in the lives of each of these young kids. Use the teachers, the workers, as your instruments to accomplish your purposes. Bless us wherever you send us in the days of this week that we might honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email soundwords at ihcc.org or give us a call at 402-483-4541.